Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello everyone, welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and I've got a question. What does the Habsburg royal family, the French military under Napoleon III, Abraham Lincoln and Mexico have in common? Well, they come together, they merge in a remarkable history of Maximilian I, and of, well, Maximilian the only, the last emperor of Mexico. Maximilian believed that under his rule, Mexico would one day be richer and more powerful than the United States. But in a few short years, his power had slipped away, eroded in the face of military defeats, economic turmoil and deception by his allies. To take us through this remarkable history, we have the brilliant historian Edward Shawcross. He's the author of a new book, The Last Emperor of Mexico a disaster in the new world. Now, I know you're going to love this one, and we've got so many international histories that will take you round the world in 2022. So drop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, or just simply share your favourite episodes with friends and family. But now, here is Edward Shawcross on The Last Emperor of Mexico. Enjoy. Hi Ed, welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. It's just rather cold, rainy and miserable, but um, otherwise well. <laughs> I'll take a guess at where you are in the world. Cold, wet, miserable, are you in Britain? Spot on. London, in fact. <laughs> I mean, there's something beautiful about a rainy day in London, but there's also something bloody miserable, isn't there? Well, I think you probably get one too many of them when you are in London. But, you know, the, the days are getting lighter, imperceptibly perhaps, but they do seem to be. The days are getting lighter and this podcast from the history that you've written is going to transport us to warmer climates across the world and take us deep into the politics of Mexico. And I'm really glad that you've come on the podcast because I read the review of your new book in the uh, in the Wall Street Journal and it's fair to say that it intrigued me. I mean, who wouldn't be intrigued by this opening sentence? The saga of Maximilian I, Emperor of Mexico, has all the elements of a grand opera. International intrigue, 
ill-starred romance, abject betrayal, and a well-meaning hero with the tragic flaws of hubris and self-delusion. And when we mix in Napoleon III, the might of the French Empire, the US-Mexican War, and French battles in Mexico, I think it's clear to see why I had to get you on the podcast. So, Ed, take us on a journey back in time. Take us to the 1820s and tell us, who was Maximilian I? Right, well, so Maximilian, as is your brilliant introduction there, told us he becomes emperor of Mexico. But in order to understand you know, how he got there and why, we do, as you say, need to go right back to 1820s Mexico, which is when Mexico becomes independent, as indeed most Latin American nation states do. There's something unusual about Mexico in that it becomes independent not as a republic, but in fact, as an empire, as a constitutional monarchy, after a brutal 11-year war against the Spanish Empire, a former Spanish royalist officer, Itabide, turns against his, his employers and fights for independence. And he's able to unite the disparate groups fighting against the Spanish behind this idea of a constitutional monarchy. Now, there's a serious flaw in his otherwise brilliant plan, which is that, of course, for a monarchy, you need a monarch. He has an answer to that, which is that he invites the King of Spain or one of the um, Spanish royal families to rule over Mexico as an independent nation-state constitutional monarchy, but closely tied to Spain. Now, Ferdinand VII, who is the King of Spain, rejects this outright. He has no interest in anything other than the complete reconquest of one of the richest parts of the Spanish Empire. So Itabide is faced with a seemingly insoluble problem. What do I do? I need a monarch. Well, luckily, there is a candidate right there. It's himself. He becomes emperor of Mexico, the first emperor of Mexico, crowned in 1822. He only lasts in power nine months. The reign is disastrous. He's forced into exile, returns a, a couple of years later in the expectation he'll be welcomed back as a hero. That was a mistake because he's arrested for treason and shot. Now, Mexico then does become a federal republic, but unfortunately, its history after independence is an unhappy one. It's politically unstable. Governments are in power um, for very short periods of time and they're toppled violently. The ballot box has little significance, um, although there, you know, there are elections and it is normally democratic. Really, it comes down to, um, to military power and the number of supporters you have and who can control the capital. The second thing that marks Mexico out from other Latin American nations is its proximity to the United States of America. Now, so far, that story of political instability would be familiar, as I say, to, to other Latin American countries. What shakes Mexico to its very foundation and leads some to believe that Maximilian might potentially be a solution to these problems is the US-Mexican War. In 1846, the United States of America declares war on Mexico, and this is a disaster for Mexico and indeed the Mexican army, which loses every single major encounter it fights. The United States of America, in a very short time, is able to march inland from Veracruz, the principal port on the Atlantic side of Mexico, the same route as the conquistadors did in the 16th century to Mexico City, and the stars and stripes is unfurled over this magnificent former um, imperial capital of Spain and now capital of an independent Mexico state. To get the United States of America out of Mexico comes at a very high price. Mexico is forced to sign away half of its national territory. So these are places like California and other territories in, in, into the west of the United States of America. There are huge amounts of land, which the United States of America pays $50 million to give it a sort of veneer of legitimacy and legality. But the, the real thing that the Mexicans get is that the US occupying troops leave. So you have political instability followed by national humiliation and trauma in Mexico. And to use an anachronism, by the 1850s, you're looking at something of a failed state, whereby the future seems bleak. So is it at this point then that Mexico starts to descend in what I suppose can be described as a, as a bit of a civil war? 
Absolutely right. It's it, it, so what happens is in 1855, a, a group of much more radical liberal politicians sweep to power. And again, in another revolution, toppling a dictator who'd been in power previously. Now, they believe that the trauma of the US-Mexican war is because Mexico is not liberal enough, it's not modern enough. What they want to do is break the colonial institutions, particularly the power of the Catholic Church, which is the single biggest landowner in Mexico. So they go about that introducing very standard sort of liberal reforms by the day. They nationalize church property. They break the church's whole of education. They do what they would say is, is dragging Mexico kicking and screaming into the mid-19th century. There are some people, though, who don't want to be dragged into the mid-19th century, and these are a conservative faction. They're known as the Conservative Party. And as one might expect, they believe the absolute bastion of Mexican nationalism is the Catholic Church. These liberal secular attacks are impious, and what these liberals, led by a lawyer called Benito Juarez, are doing is they are destroying Mexican national identity, and in fact they are, they are fatally weakening it for what they expect will be another onslaught from the United States of America. Now, some within this conservative faction hark back to that original story of Mexican independence, where Mexico is supposed to be a constitutional monarchy. For them, Itabide's assumption of the crown where he himself becomes emperor, is Mexico's original sin from which all other problems stem. Because they argue that Mexico is inherently monarchical. Its traditions are monarchical. The Spanish Empire was, of course, a monarchy. They invoked the Aztec Empire, which was, of course, ruled by an emperor. And they say, you know, federal republican democracy is an alien imposition, deliberately exported, in fact, by the United States of America to destabilize Mexico, with the inevitable consequence that its territory was absorbed into the United States of America. And further liberalization and secularization in that direction will mean that Mexico will cease to exist. What we need to do is return to the original plan of independence, as they see it, which was to have a monarchy. Now, they put this to, to the test, as you say, in the Civil War, and they lose. Benito Juarez and his liberals defeat the Conservatives after a three-year conflict from 1858 to 1861. And really, our story should end there. It doesn't. It doesn't because some influential politicians in the Conservative Party flee in exile to Paris, where they happen to have the ear of one of the most powerful men in Europe, Napoleon III. Yes, Napoleon III. Okay, so this is where the French start to come into this story. Now, am I right? Napoleon III is a nephew of Napoleon. Is that correct? Absolutely right. He's a nephew uh, and self-appointed inheritor of the great Bonapartist legacy. He sees himself as his destiny to recreate his uncle's empire and, and to rule France. And he's very open about it. He said something like, I believe that men are appointed by Providence and I am one such man. My destiny is to lead France to greatness. I'm paraphrasing here. And he says, that, you know, if this is not the case, I will, I will perish needlessly. But if so, I will relieve France gloriously. Now, no one takes him seriously, as indeed you might not after hearing that kind of, sort of self-belief. And in France, he's, he's considered a joke, not least because, as any good Bonapartist, he has already attempted to seize power in a coup d'etat, not once but twice. And they both fail in comic circumstances, really. It's less a well-organised military coup and more a sort of stag do that goes wrong. The, the second one, he sort of turns up on the coast of France, having hired a steamship to take him across from England and expects to, that the French army will rally to his cause. It doesn't. They arrest all of his supporters and he tries to swim back to his boat, nearly drowns and is fished out of the water. So this is not the person who the political elite of France think is going to, to lead the country to greatness. But another seismic event in 1848, which is, by the way, when that peace treaty with Mexico is signed, is the European revolutions in Paris. The monarchy is toppled again. A republic is declared again. And there's a presidential election. The first ever democratically elected president of France 
is Louis Napoleon Bonaparte, the nephew of the more famous one. But of course, as any self-respecting Bonapartist is not happy with the title of president, he wants to become emperor, he wants to recreate his uncle's empire and the French Second Empire. The constitution doesn't allow him to do that. Third time lucky, a coup d'etat. I think a top tip for anyone trying to launch a coup d'etat is to be in control of the government already, which now he is. He's able to get the army on board crucially and he's able to take seize power and declare himself one year later emperor of the French in 1852. Okay, so so this is it. So he's he's risen to the highest power in the land. He's taken that title that he's wanted for his entire life to be emperor, and he sets his sights on Mexico as being a part of making France great again. To to borrow a phrase, perhaps from more contemporary times. Absolutely right. So if people have heard of Napoleon the Third, it's often obliquely through the Marx quote: "The first time as tragedy, the second time as farce." And that's referring to his Pisteur coup d'etat when he takes over the French state and then and one year later recreates his empire. Now, actually, although we've, we have kind of painted him as a, as a rather ridiculous figure, in the 1850s, there's not very much farcical about his regime at all. He seems to have restored France to greatness, made France great again, to, um, to coin a phrase. The Crimean War, he allies with Britain, ending France's isolation after 1815. They defeat the Russian army and it's a victory. In 1859, he fights against Austria, against Franz Joseph, the Emperor of Austria. And again, his armies are victorious. The economy is expanding, infrastructure is developing, there's all kinds of innovative systems of finance in France in the 1850s. It seems that he has alighted upon a model of government that is successful and stable domestically and is restoring France to use another anachronism to superpower status. And he casts his eyes wider to see where else uh, he can push French influence and, and French power. And it's at that moment that the Mexican conservatives uh, come into his court, whisper into his ear, and actually the ear of his wife, who they've got very incredible access to, explaining this wonderful plan that all would be required would be a few European soldiers to turn up on the shores of Mexico, uh, supporting a monarchy, and the Mexican people would rise up in support of it and sort of carry the French, French army to Mexico City, throwing flowers um, in front of them great liberators of Mexico, restoring it to what it was meant to originally be after independence, having the emperor put in place. Is it at this point then that Napoleon III decides that actually this is pretty alluring? And because, well, he knows that emperors do a good job, he needs to find himself an emperor to be put on the throne of Mexico. Absolutely right. And so, and that is really important to remember. It seems outlandish to us, and as it will see, it is outlandish. But Napoleon III has done that trick in France. He has ended a republic, created an empire, and the, the, the subsequent decade has been, on his own terms, a success. Of course, for an empire, you need an emperor. Maximilian is the choice um, that Napoleon III alights on. Now, there's a number of reasons for that, um, not least um, the character of Maximilian himself, and we should introduce him and talk a little bit about him. So he's a Habsburg. Now, if you're trying to create a monarchy, the brand name Habsburg is, is right up there. It's the, it's the most illustrious, one of the oldest dynasties that traces power back to the 13th century. There's a long tradition of placing Habsburgs on various thrones in Europe, so why not in Mexico? It is, of course, under Charles V that Mexico is first subjugated and conquered in the name of the Spanish Empire, so that is that, there is that connection. But also the character of Maximilian is important. He's a younger brother of Franz Joseph, 
Emperor of Austria, who, by the way, becomes emperor in 1848, um, that seismic year. Maximilian's very different to his brother, Franz Joseph. Franz Joseph is very rigid, very conservative, very autocratic. Maximilian, much more outgoing, much more gregarious, and much more liberal, crucially. This makes him a danger to Franz Joseph because he's seen as a sort of a popular alternative, uh, a Prince Harry to your Prince William, if you will. I was, I was thinking that exactly as you said it. I was thinking, is this what all younger brothers, the younger princes, are like? Absolutely. It's that, it's that classic trick. Maximilian also believes that he's destined for greatness and a great role, but he is being stifled by his family who are not giving him that. So Franz Joseph sees him as a threat, so he puts him in charge of the Austrian Navy as commander-in-chief. Now that sounds like an important job, but it's, it's something of a slight because the Austrian Navy is not one of the great fleets of the maritime world, as I'm sure your listeners will be aware. They've inherited some sort of decrepit Venetian ships after, after the Congress of Vienna. Now, Maximilian does a good job as, as commander-in-chief in the Navy. He also loves that position, so it's not quite the slight you might expect. But it's not the one that he feels he's destined for. Now, if we are going to do the Prince Harry analogy, every Harry needs their Meghan. And what steals Maximilian and furthers his ambition is his wife, Carlotta, who he meets on a diplomatic mission. To introduce her, she is the daughter of the King of Belgium, Leopold I. But on her mother's side, she's descended to the, the French royal family. So again, you know, so they're, they're quite the power couple, Ed. They absolutely, they absolutely are. But as a Belgian princess, despite the fact she has this illustrious ancestry on her mother's side, for a Habsburg, that's really not posh enough. So there is that again, that, uh, that Megan element. She's not welcomed into the Habsburg fold. She, there's always something of an outsider, in which Maximilian himself sort of begins to, to, to revel in and, he, and becomes much more attached, actually, to Leopold, to Carlotta's father, his father-in-law. Now, as a condition of the marriage between Maximilian and Carlotta is Leopold has managed to secure Maximilian a job that he thinks he's worthy of his talents, which is governor of Lombardy, Venetia, northern Italy. Again, this is something of a poison challenge. Franz Franz Joseph has given him this position because it's a hotbed of uh, revolutionary sedition and Italian nationalism, i.e. it's going to be very hard for Maximilian to succeed. And in fact, he doesn't. Franz Joseph keeps real power in Vienna. By 1859, the, the situation has descended into war. France is actually invaded, as, as we said, Napoleon III expires an opportunity here. Maximilian is sacked. Austria is defeated. And so when the offer of a crown in Mexico reaches Maximilian, which is in 1861, October 1861, he is in a perfect position to be receptive to it. Frustrated, ambitious, disillusioned with his family, but steeled by Carlotta, his wife, who is even more ambitious, you might say, than he is. She's determined that she will sort of escape the humdrum life of Habsburg court and have an active, powerful role in politics, which, of course, being empress of Mexico would give her. So... I mean, instead of moving from Europe, let's say, to California, like some modern royals might do, they move from Europe to Mexico. And are they received as great royals and instillers of peace and security and a, a triumphant nationalism that will take Mexico from strength to strength? Well, the short answer is no. And in fact, the offer to Maximilian is first informally given. And we should bear in mind, this is an imaginary throne that he's being offered, right? There is no Mexican uh, kingdom to, to offer. These are, these are 
conspirators defeated in civil war, offering a throne that will in the future be built, so they say. That's in 1861. Now, Napoleon III backs the scheme. He sends forces to Mexico. They I was, was going to say, this, this is going to need an army, isn't it? Because the French aren't in power there. These are those who have been defeated, whispering in the emperor's ear. And so it can't just be Colotta and Maximilian turning up and asking for, for the throne. You need some military might behind this. Right. Exactly right. So before Maximilian can sit on this throne, it needs to be created, and it's going to be created through the might of the French army. French military expedition is sent to Mexico, 1862, and it's actually a joint intervention with Spain and Britain. Napoleon III, he's, he's a conspirator, he's a gambler, and he's concocted this plan without really telling his allies what he's about to do. So when the French forces land in Mexico, and it soon becomes clear to the British and Spanish that he plans on, on, on regime change on a massive scale, they drop out, leaving the French to march inland on their own. They've only got about 6,000 troops, and Mexico is, is enormous. Now, the reason for that is because of this idea that they will be helped by Mexican allies, that there will there are monarchists in Mexico, those factions defeated in civil war, they still have thousands of men in the field, and they will sort of flock to the French banner. That doesn't happen, unfortunately, for the French. And so the 6,000, they, they march anyway, and they march to Puebla, which is inland from Mexico City. So this extraordinary journey, again, the same one that Hernán Cortés did in the 16th century and the U.S. Army did just over a decade ago, up through sort of volcanoes, ravines, you know, upwards 2,000, 3,000 metres high. And they get to the plain of, of Puebla, which is the second city of Mexico, and they are expecting a, an easy victory. And the commander-in-chief is incredibly confident. In fact, he writes back to the Minister of War, um, that at the head of 6,000 soldiers, um, your excellency can inform the emperor that I am now master of Mexico. Now, we know what happens when someone says something like that. It's demonstrated um, that that hubris is something that was excessive, to say the least. So confident is the French commander that he will win victory in Storm um, Puebla that he launches a head-on attack against its strongest position. Uh, he thinks that the Mexican army is disorganised, is weak, and that as soon as they, as they sort of cold steel of the French bayonet, they will crumble. The opposite happens. The defence is heroic on the part of the Juaristas, which is the name given to the supporters of Benito Juarez, who, by the way, is the legitimate president of the country, hence why the Mexican nation doesn't rally around the invading French army. And it's a heroic victory, which has gone down in history, because it was on the 5th of May, as uh, Cinco de Mayo. So next time you're celebrating Cinco de Mayo and you're wondering what you're celebrating, raise a glass of tequila to the, the Juaristas who defeated the French army. And it's, it is worth just pausing a moment there because this, this army is the victors of the Crimea. They've defeated the Austrians in Italy. They've also been engaged in brutal, vicious colonial warfare in Algeria. And besides that, any European army defeated outside of Europe is a quite astonishing and rare event in the 19th century. This, of course, there are lots of moments where, we, where I will say, well, our story should end here. Because at this point, Napoleon III should realise that he's been misled. And certainly Maximilian should realise that he's not going to be the popular liberal emperor that he is in his head because there's been a, you know, the French army has been defeated and had there not been popular support for Benito Juarez in Mexico, of course that couldn't have happened. But you won't be surprised to learn that neither Napoleon III nor Maximilian heed, heed the warning. In fact, what Napoleon III does is he just sends reinforcements, another 25,000 men. So by the end of the year, he's got about 30,000 French troops in Mexico. That's considerable reinforcements, and it shows you that the strength of the Mexicans at that point, that they must have really quite put a bloody nose onto the French, the French army. Absolutely. And if thinking, especially 
if I'm not sure how familiar listeners will be in terms of conflicts in, in Latin America in the 19th century, but 30,000 troops is a lot. The number that, that the US expeditionary force that fought its way up was about 12,000. There were more US troops in Mexico. Obviously, it's closer and easier to get to, but 30,000 is a lot. And it, that, that proves enough to overwhelm the Benito Juarez's forces, but not completely. So it's not until um, the summer of 1863, a year and a half after the French first landed, that they are able to occupy Mexico City, having taken Puebla by siege a few months earlier. Juarez realizes he can't defend the capital uh, and retreats northward, undefeated. A puppet government is set up, which supposedly in the name of the people calls Maximilian to rule as emperor of Mexico, which is now proclaimed a monarchy to loud acclamations and cheers. And, th- and there is, it should, we, shouldn't, we should say that there is some support for this scheme in Mexico. It's not, it's certainly not majority. If it was put to a vote, Maximilian's not going to win. But there are some people who do believe that, that this can work. And of course, Juarez has abandoned the capital. So if you are a diehard supporter of Benito Juarez, you've abandoned the capital with him. So at this point, Mexico City is fairly safe ground for the Royalists. It's not until a year after that that Maximilian actually takes the decision to go to Mexico and, and arrives there. Because, of course, it's a, you know, it's a six-week voyage. So he doesn't get there until May of 1864. So we are now, what, nearly three years after he was first offered the crown. And that just goes to show how difficult the job that he's going to have to undertake is and how tenuous the support was for this scheme that was, of course, promised to be one of the the easiest military engagements in in, in history. Was he doubtful? Was he hesitant about taking this position? You say, of course, it, it takes three years for him finally to be installed, but is he also dragging the feet a little bit himself? Does he need some convincing he absolutely does. So he's a dreamer, Maximilian. He's um, He's been brought up on these legends of, of Habsburg glory, and he dreams of himself fulfilling that role. Once the reality becomes apparent, that dream quickly fades uh, and becomes something of a nightmare. He's someone who vacillates, he prevaricates, procrastinates, and it's Carlotta who steals him. Carlotta is determined to become empress. So Maximilian, it keeps finding problems, keeps finding reasons why they, why they won't be able to go. His brother, Franz Joseph, asks him to renounce his Habsburg inheritance, saying that he and his heirs can never inherit the Austrian throne. He's about to break off all of his promises to Napoleon III and to the Mexicans that he's been engaging with and say, I won't go to Mexico. It's Carlotta who persuades him and Napoleon III, because, of course, Napoleon III, to have spent hundreds of millions of francs and sent tens of thousands of men to Mexico to create a monarchy, suddenly that monarch backs out and is not a strong look. So he writes several letters um, to to Maximilian in which he offers his undying support. And he says, you can be sure that my support will not fail you. In essence, you know, whatever happens, you've got the military might of France behind you, no matter how difficult it gets. And it's these promises that reassure Maximilian finally to accept the crown and voyage to Mexico in, in May of 1864. So, so he gets there. What's his ambition for Mexico? What does he want Mexico to become under his tenure, under his rule? He's a man of contradictions and his empire is one of contradictions too. Because as we said earlier, he's been called by the more conservative sections of Mexican society, those people who believe that the Catholic Church is under attack, who believe that strong central government is what's needed uh, in order to restore Mexico to, to greatness. Maximilian is a moderate liberal. He's a product of the Enlightenment. He sees himself as a, as, as a modern man in touch with what he would call the spirit of the age. So when he gets to Mexico, the issues that his conservative allies had been fighting to overturn, nationalization of church property, secular reforms, the position of the Catholic Church within education, etc., Maximilian adopts Juarez's liberal program. 
He's also really interested in, in things like reforming education, giving rights to labourers and days off for, for workers, abolishing debt peonage, which is a sort of um, iniquitous system whereby people on large haciendas are, are, are forced into, into work because of the debt that they owe to the, to the landowners. Um, so he's, he has, you know, a lots of laudable ideas, lots of laudable visions. The problem is he's ruling Mexico as though it were a well-established, well-set-up, and secure state. Now, had he been doing this in Austria, we would probably be looking back on Maximilian as one of the great sort of liberalizing forces of the 19th century. Trying to do this in the midst of a civil war with Benito Juarez undefeated and the Mexican state, which, which, he, which he inherits, is, is, has never been stable or strong, is not the opposite time to try and introduce these reforms. So he alienates his, his core constituency by being too liberal. He doesn't win over a huge number of liberals because Benito Juarez, the, the liberal hero of the earlier civil war, is still holding out, out against foreign resistance uh, and immediately encounters the problems that all Mexican governments had, which is finances. But his financial situation is even worse. Not only does he not control all of Mexico, but Napoleon III has done what I think could best be termed today a leverage buyout. The hundreds of millions of francs that we mentioned earlier that it costs to send, clothe, feed and keep an army in Mexico that is going to be put onto the Mexican treasury, not the French treasury. In order to meet Maximilian's immediate expenditure, loans are taken out in Europe at outrageous terms of repayment. So within months, his regime is near bankruptcy. In short, he faces serious problems. Wow. So the Mexican people have to pay for their own occupation at this point in time. The privilege of hosting the French army is put upon the Mexican people that it is fighting and subjugating it. And what a privilege it must have been. But I've, I've just, something just twigged in my head. The 1823 Monroe Doctrine stated that the United States would stay out of the affairs of the European old world and would enforce a situation where the European old world should not be involved in affairs on the American continent. So at this point in time, what is Abraham Lincoln thinking about the fact that the French, for all intents and purposes, are now occupying Mexico? Well, he's not happy, to put it bluntly. But what's absolutely key is the geopolitical space to create this Mexican empire exists because of another civil war. So in the same year, the Mexican Civil War ends in 1861. The Civil War in the United States of America begins. And in a way, you can see that it's a, these two conflicts as, um, as a battleground for the future of North America. Now, the Monroe Doctrine, as you say, absolutely stipulates and that European interference of this kind simply cannot happen. And it would have been enforced, and there's no way this would have happened had it not been for the fact that the United States of America is divided in two in this existential struggle between the Union and the Confederacy. Lincoln is terrified that any move that will antagonise France could result in Napoleon III, who is incredibly sympathetic to the idea of an independent Confederate state, would lead to him either recognising the Confederacy, worse still, getting involved in, in the Civil War, either as a mediator or perhaps even militarily. Um, who knows? I mean, Bonaparte's ambitions are never small, are they? Lincoln and his Secretary of State, Seward, William Seward, um, are very cautious they never recognise Maximilian's government. All the European powers do, Britain, France, Spain, Austria, Prussia. The United States of America never recognises his government. It, for, the, for the United States of America, this is a usurper. Well, it's not a usurper, I suppose. There's no throne to usurp. It's always the so-called empire, the so-called emperor. They don't recognise it. But they meaningful support to Juarez at this stage during the, the Civil War, they can't give for fear of upsetting the French. So there is this window in which it might have been possible to carve out this, this empire. But as we say, by the time Maximilian is there... 
it's May 1864, and I'm sure in our, your listeners will be Civil War um, enthusiasts or, or at least well-versed in its history. That doesn't leave much time until the Monroe Doctrine is going to be very enforceable. Not only will it be enforceable, but the United States Army will be larger and better equipped. And, you know, never at any time in its history would be, it would be a better time to uh, invade Mexico than when you have a 500,000 strong um, Union Army full of veterans who've just seen um, extreme combat. So the situation from the international point of view for Maximilian's empire from the United States of America is increasingly looking bleak. How can toilet training cows help save the planet? Should we start renting our clothes? And why on earth is Beds from the Happy Mondays now keeping bees? I'm Jimmy Doherty, TV presenter, farmer and conservationist. And these are just a few of the questions we'll be answering on my new podcast on Jimmy's Farm from History Hit. Join me on the farm to hear from the likes of the founder of the Eden Project, Sir Tim Smith, Professor Dieter Helm on how to stop climate change, and my old friend, Jamie Oliver. Listen to On Jimmy's Farm now, wherever you get your podcasts. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Yes, of course, because the American Civil War comes to an end in 1865. So is this a point at where we start to see this this very young Mexican empire, if we can call it that in anything but name, starts to decline? Absolutely. So 
Actually, in 1865, in the summer of 1865, the territory controlled by Maximilian's forces, they're called imperialistas, is at its largest extent, and it stretches um, much further than it did even when he arrived in 1864. But it is at this moment that the tide begins to turn, and not least because of the end of the Civil War in the United States. And there's two reasons for that. The first is that, is that there had been an embargo on arms, leaving the Union and going to Mexico, precisely because it could antagonise um, European powers. That's lifted. Juarez is finally able to resupply. His armies have been desperately depleted in terms of munitions and weapons. And with that, they're also able to access credit as well, because their fortunes seem to be improving. So you had a dwindling resistance, you know, to the point whereby Juarez's own supporters, his former foreign secretary, had asked him to resign and come to an accommodation with the French and with Maximilian, because it seemed so impossible for him to triumph against against those odds to the point where confidence is flowing back towards Benito Juarez and his Juarez's Republican supporters. At the same time, Maximilian's finances are on the uh, point of bankruptcy. He can no longer pay his officials. He can no longer pay his army. And if you are struggling to pay your government and your army during a time of civil war, it's not a strong look. So what happens is that uh, at the end of 1865, Maximilian is forced to ask Napoleon III for credit. He says... I know I signed these agreements before I left that I would pay you a certain amount each month to keep the French army here. For this month, you're just going to have to cover it. It's fine. You know, you know how it is amongst friends. Um, no doubt thinking your support will never fail me, as you wrote in your letter. And it's at this point that the Napoleon Third support absolutely fails. He is under enormous pressure from the United States of America, who have all but threatened war. They've said that if the French troops remain in Mexico, then they will be, you know, they will drive them out themselves. And of course, you know, if, if there's a conflict between French troops and US troops, then... You have, you, you know, you have a conflict on your hands. There is absolutely no way that Napoleon III is countenancing war with the United States of America. He went into this because it was empire on the cheap. It would be easy. He would have a regime tied to France with all the benefits of colonialism without any of the cost. And this is turning into another Algeria. The only way to make a success, if that's the right word for what he's doing there, would be to send more troops and more money. But that would mean war with the United States of America. Yes, what does what does Maximilian do? I mean, it's it's a difficult situation, Ed. Yeah, he's not here. He's not got many options. So when he hears that Napoleon III has in fact abandoned him, he does the sensible thing and he decides to abdicate. Yet another point where the story should end, and he should go back tail between his legs um, and live out his dilettante life of a European aristocrat. He doesn't. The reason he doesn't is because of his wife, Carlotta. She's furious. Now, I mentioned earlier that she is, on her, on her mother's side, related to French kings. It's Louis-Philippe, the July monarchy that falls in 1848. And Louis-Philippe had advocated, rather than stand down, face down the revolutionaries in Paris. And Carlotta and other members of her family had been told that this was a, a humiliation and an act of cowardice that had put shame upon her family for generations to come. So she is furious when she hears her husband's decision. She writes a long memorandum, which even reading it today, you can feel the ferocity of her her words. She accuses Maximilian of cowardice. She says that at least kings in in the medieval period waited until someone came to take their states away from them before giving up. And she says that as long as there is six foot and an emperor, then there will be an empire, i.e. you go down fighting. The other thing that she that she does, I mean, after the tirade, so here comes the sort of the sweetener. She says, don't worry, I will go to Paris. I will speak to Napoleon III. I will remind him of his binding promises and we will get continued French support. Now, it, it should, we should say, and this will be familiar to listeners to recent interventions, Napoleon III decides to withdraw, but he does what is called a phase withdrawal. 
He's not going to pull the troops out immediately. They're going to stay until the end of 1867. So he announces it January 1866. They're going to stay for, you know, just under two years and come out in phases. So for what he thinks might give Maximilian time to consolidate the empire. So there's time. And also that gives Maximilian and Carlotta mixed signals. You know, is it something he's doing for public, public opinion? Is it something he's doing just to placate the United States of America, but he can actually sustain this regime perhaps in slightly more clandestine ways? Carlos gets to Paris. Now, Napoleon III, and I have some sympathy with him here, no one likes to be reminded of their mistakes, does everything he can not to meet her. He says he's ill. Um, he said, wouldn't you much rather go and see this person? Carlos doesn't take no for an answer. She insists on it. She essentially says, I will break into the Tuileries if I have to. You know, we must have this meeting. So eventually she gets the meeting with Napoleon III. She brings the letters in which he said, my support will never fail you. She puts them on the table, forces Napoleon III to read them, and Napoleon III actually starts crying at this point. But, crucially despite his personal sorrow about the situation, he will not be moved and he will not go back on his decision. So Carlotta's mission has failed. And she's got one more trick up her sleeve, which is that she will go to Rome for an audience with the Pope. Now, because Maximilian has alienated his conservative supporters, remember, he refused to return the church land and overturned Horace's secular reforms. Catholic Mexico has largely deserted him, and that should have been his key constituency. If Carlotta can get a concordat with the Pope, an agreement with the Pope that blesses Maximilian's liberal reforms, then, of course, those Catholics who are opposing them have to come back on board. And so that could be a significant level of support. That's why she's going to Rome. Now, the Pope has absolutely no intention of doing this because um, it's Pope Pius IX, who's who's incredibly uh, reactionary, even by the standards of of the Catholic Church. But it doesn't matter. Carlotta's convinced of her powers of persuasion, but she is beginning to have paranoid delusions. She thinks that Napoleon III is trying to poison her. So when she goes to meet the Pope, she should be talking about church issues. She has an hour and a half conversation accusing the entourage that's travelled with her from Mexico of being in the pay of what she calls the principle of evil upon her, Napoleon III. And he is paying them to poison her. They're assassins. Because the Pope sort of you know, tries to make light of this, as, as I suppose you, you would do in that situation, sort of sees her on the way and says, you know, we'll talk about this another time and arranges a, a follow-up meeting. Carlotta can't wait for that. A few days afterwards, she insists her servants drive her to the Vatican. She sort of breaks in through, through the gates, and people are saying, do you have an appointment with the Pope? No, I don't, um, but I'm coming in anyway. Demands to see. It's very early in the, early in the morning, and the, and the Pope is eventually sort of dragged out of bed to, to see Carlotta. And she breaks down in, in uncontrollable tears in front of him, screaming that Napoleon III is, is trying to kill her, and she has completely lost all reason and had, had a mental breakdown. It's very tragic. And she won't leave the Vatican uh, and breaking, I think, um, I imagine this has been broken many times, but officially, Belgian princess is not allowed to stay overnight in the Vatican. They can't get her out. uh, And they're only able to do so the next day, bundling her off back to her hotel, where she sequesters herself away in the suite of rooms that she's, um, she's hired. And she won't see anyone except for one maid who she trusts, but she makes that maid kill live chickens and cook them in front of her. Uh, So terrified is she that her food will be poisoned. She'll only eat oranges that she peels herself nuts or food that she's seen prepared in front of her and she's completely lost all reason so not only has she failed but there's been a catastrophic and and, and tragic breakdown in, in her mental health back in mexico maximilian's oblivious to this there is a transatlantic cable it doesn't work very well so most news takes four to six weeks he's boring himself for his wife's success he's got great confidence in her but of course when the news comes in october of 1866 that his wife is suffering from serious illness and not, Napoleon III is not going to give him any more support, he does the sensible thing and decides to abdicate. Again, 
once again a point where our story should end. It doesn't. Unfortunately, Max Brennan brings his usual prevarication and indecision to decisions to abdicate. He ships his furniture to Veracruz. He ships his archive. All of that goes to Europe. So sure is everyone that he's, he's going to leave and indeed is in Europe. But Maximilian doesn't go with it. He begins to have doubts. Well, take us through these doubts, Ed. Take us through this final, this last stand of Maximilian I. Maximilian the, the only, I guess, the emperor of Mexico. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's a, a number of things swayed him. And Maximilian is a man obsessed by honour and, as, as we said earlier, obsessed by his Habsburg lineage. And I think he wakes up every morning and he asks himself, what would a Habsburg do? And one thing that a Habsburg wouldn't do is, is abdicate, which he, he begins to associate with running away. Um, his Mexican allies, the Conservative Party, now do finally rally to him. They see that he's isolated. They see an opportunity. They say, if you back our programme, if you support the Catholic Church in Mexico, we can bring tens of thousands of men and tens of millions of dollars into the imperial treasury. So they, they promise a lot. Now, because they know that if he abdicates and the game is up and any chance that they have for their vision of Mexico to succeed will be over, but they flatter him, they talk to him, they cajole, they convince him. The British diplomat um, minister to Mexico, the equivalent of the ambassador, plays a, a rather shameful role in this because he is on his way um, out of Mexico as well. And he stops off to see Maximilian and they were friends and spend a lot of time together. And he says to Maximilian that it would be dishonourable um, to leave at this time. And as I say, for a man obsessed by honour to have a British diplomat say that to you, and Maximilian's a real Anglophile as well. And he thinks if a British diplomat is telling me this, it must be the view of the British government. And if the British government wants me to stay here, then, um, you know, there's at least there's some kind of uh, official backing to this project. And surely my chances of success are perhaps greater than I thought. Now, this it takes 40 days of indecision rather than decision before he comes to the conclusion that he will stay and it, even that decision he puts to a vote he gets his council of ministers and advisors to vote on it and in the end they do vote 21 to um uh, 21 out of 23 that the empire should continue but 11 of those votes are that the empire should continue until another government could be put in place i.e if you leave now it'll be chaos right because the civil war horrors will take over you should come to an arrangement agree to go and then, and at which point, you know, abdicate and, and leave. So although it seems like people have voted for the empire to stay, actually, it's much more complicated than that. There's only been 10 votes where they said, no, the empire should stay, whatever. Maximilian, though, seizes on this and sees it as a, as a decisive um, moment. So he has the support of his ministers and his politicians and that there is a future for the empire. Now, of course, while all of this is happening, Juaristas are continuing to fight. And there are places under siege. Oaxaca, which is an important town in southeast of Mexico, is under siege. And you can, as, as the Juarista forces are besieging the town, of course, they're taunting the defenders, saying, well, you're, you know, your emperor's abdicated, um, spreading false rumours, and all of this kind of thing. So the few people who have remained loyal, who are still fighting for Maximilian, are thrown into even more chaos and confusion while all of this deliberation goes on. It's not till January 1867 that he gets back to his capital in Mexico City. And by now, as the United States of America, British acquirers would never call it an empire, but it's almost ridiculous to call it an empire. What Maximilian controls is Mexico City, a few towns that run a ribbon to Veracruz, which the French are garrisoning very strongly because that's their escape route. And then one or two towns to the northwest of Mexico that are sort of imperialist and redoubts and strong conservative support. So at this point, he is tantamount to the mayor of Mexico City. He's basically the mayor of Mexico City with a few loyal mayors in, in one or two other places. Emperor, perhaps too grandiose a word. Now, the French 
leave Mexico City on the 5th of February, having been there for nearly five years. And Napoleon III desperately wants Maximilian to abdicate. Because while it's humiliating for this empire to have collapsed, what would be even more humiliating would be Maximilian to be captured or worse still executed by the forces that the French have been fighting. So Napoleon III puts enormous pressure on Maximilian to abdicate and in doing so makes his position even weaker, Maximilian's. He insists on squeezing what little money he can out of the Mexican treasury, even as Maximilian is you know, sort of selling off his furniture and carriages to try and pay for the few troops that he has left. He also had agreed on that phase withdrawal. They're leaving in February because he rescinds that. It's another broken promise. He says it's too dangerous to withdraw the French in stages. They'll be picked off by Juaristas. And so they're all going to leave en masse one date. And you can imagine the panic that exists in Mexico City on the last day that the French can guarantee the safety of refugees from Mexico City to Veracruz. He also insists that there had been thousands of foreign volunteers had gone to fight for Maximilian. And he offers them free passage home because he knows that they want to go home <laughs> and that they won't stay and fight. So on the one hand, you could say a generous offer, and I'm sure the people who got out did see it that way. But from Maximilian's point of view, it was deliberately designed to undermine what support he had. He's in a terrible situation, but he does at least have this, his conservative allies fully on board, which they hadn't been before. And they bring to him a plan. And it's the sort of plan which I think if, if, if anyone ever brings it to you, you should immediately reject. It's for a, a heroic last stand where you will march what remains of the Imperial Easter Army out to a, a town to the northwest of Mexico, about 130 miles away. Queretaro is its name. And it is where Imperial Easter forces are, have, are congregating. There are three Har Easter armies advancing on them. So the idea is you might be able to defeat these three Har Easter armies one at a time with decisive bold action, reverse the fortune of the empire, and lo and behold, Maximilian is the saviour of, Me of Mexico and a great Mexican patriot. If it has a ring of desperation, it, uh, it's because it is. When the Conservatives promised tens of thousands of men and tens of millions of dollars, um, they were lying. All that Maximilian is given is $50,000 and 1,500 men. This is what he's going to march to Queretaro in order to make this last stand. And he has to march through territory that's held by Juarista guerrillas. There's been a brutal guerrilla war um, raging in the background of all of this, uh, and the French counterinsurgency tactics um, even more brutal still. Maximilian does eventually make it to this town where he is able to reunite with some forces that are slightly better trained than the one that he has. I mean, you have to bear in mind that the army that he marches with is not what we would think of as an army. It is people press-ganged off the streets of Mexico City, still wearing the ragtag clothes that they were taken in. There are one or two um, slightly more professional and slightly more veteran troops, but it's, it's really it's more of an armed crowd with the artillery lumbering far behind course they're not marching in step because most of them have never been in an army and in Mexico tradition of camp followers and women that still exist so you have this sort of long training column which is a perfect target for, for guerrillas as they wend their way through the rugged terrain up, up north they do despite being under fire a number of times get there and it should be pointed out as well Maximilian's appointed himself commander-in-chief of the army he's never served in an army let alone commanded one but he does somehow make it to Cretero I suppose there's, there's not much not much use for his naval expertise here, I guess. No, well, you say that he does have his naval telescope, which he, uh, which he, which he uses as a field glass and is sort of constantly sort of looking out on the horizon. But he's also very interested in botany and fauna. So he also um, spends a lot of time on this journey, actually sort of collecting rare specimens of, of butterflies uh, and looking at the, the, the foliage of, of Mexico as he goes along. 
uh, which is perhaps not what you want in your military commander. He gets to the town, and once again, he brings his usual indecision to the role of commander-in-chief. He has a, a council of war, which debates and can't really come to a decision about what they should do. And by the time that they do come to a decision, um, these three Harisa armies I mentioned, right, well, they're now encircling the town, and it's under siege. And how many men are we talking about here? Thousands upon thousands? He's outnumbered about three to one at least, possibly four to one. About 30,000 initially Juaristas encircling the town. He's got maybe 9,000 Imperialistas defending it. And it is the worst, Cretaro is one of the worst places in the world to have a siege uh, if you're a defender because it's surrounded on hills by three sides. Maximilian doesn't have enough men to take the high ground. And so the Republican artillery is situated around the town and is raining shells down below. There's a plain out to the west, which is, of course, very quickly cut off. The town is fortified and actually... It's a very bleak situation, but the defenders of Give do have slightly more hope than you might imagine. It, what happens very quickly is that a small force is able to break out. So Maximilian had in fact left his elite soldiers, you won't be surprised to learn that this is not a great decision, had left his very best soldiers in Mexico City to garrison it. And so he sends about a thousand men to break out of the siege and go to Mexico City and bring reinforcements. And they break out very easily. So the defenders, they're, they're there, but they think, well, two weeks, journey to Mexico City, bring back the reinforcements, break the siege, and you know, perhaps, perhaps that final victory is within sight. Now, of course, what happens is that two weeks becomes four, six, two months. The relief forces are not coming. In fact, what's happened is the, um, the, the Mexican general in charge of it, a man called Leonardo Marquez, he decides his moment of glory is upon him. He's going to lead those forces he broke out with and the elite troops in Mexico City to relieve another siege at Puebla, and he is defeated catastrophically. He manages a fighting retreat back to Mexico City, but then he himself is now under siege in Mexico City. So there's no relief coming. Morale, as you might imagine, is swiftly falling, and they're running out of munitions, they're running out of food, and so the Imperialist forces under Maximilian, it, things are looking bleak. So the plan, which was desperate to begin with, is even more desperate. They pick a date for a breakout. They're going to break out of the siege with the remaining forces they have. And by now, we may be talking five, six thousand. But I suppose if you think about a siege, you just need to break through one side. So if you can surprise the enemy as to where you're going to attack, you might be able to break out. And, then, and they did actually nearly accomplish this um, um, a few weeks earlier. But by the time they had marshaled everyone for the march out, the Juaristas had managed to close the line and it was impossible. So this time they think, well, we'll do it, but we'll, you know, we'll get everyone packed a bit quicker and we'll, we'll be able to get out. It's set for the 13th of May, 1867. Maximilian decides to delay it for a day. It's set for the 14th of May, and that evening, another council of war is called, and Maximilian decides to delay it another day. Never make a decision if you don't have to, unfortunately, seems to be Maximilian's approach to being commander-in-chief of the army. On that evening, one of his most loyal officers, a man called Miguel Lopez, is brought into the emperor's, I was going to say suite, it's not a suite, he's, he's made his, um, his, his headquarters a convent, and so it's a former nun's cell that, is his, um, that you know, he's sleeping in. Not luxurious combination at all, far cry from the imperial palaces of Vienna. He pins a medal on, on Lopez and tells him that if he's captured, then Lopez is to put a bullet through his skull because he doesn't want to be captured alive. Lopez says yes, of course, and, and off he goes. 5am that morning, he's woken up to screams, shouts that the enemy is within the gates and rushes to get dressed, grabs his revolvers, his entourage, a few Mexican officers, private secretary, his doctor, trying to escape the convent. They get out into the courtyard and they see the advancing Juarista forces who have somehow got through the Imperial Eastern lines. And he's stopped by Juarista officers who look over him and his entourage and say, these men are civilians, let them pass. 
quite extraordinary moment. So he's not taken prisoner, and he's able then to make it to this place called the Hill of the Bells, which overlooks Cretaro, just to the west of the town. It's about a 20-minute march, and shells raining down, imperialistas desperately fighting and surrendering. Lopez, that man that um, we spoke about earlier, comes up on horseback and says to Maximilian, we must hide you, the enemy is, is in the town. Maximilian says, no, I'll go down fighting, we'll make it to the Hill of the Bells, and, and we'll rally our troops. He does make it to this hill. Um, it's, it's gently undulates up. He scrambles upwards as the artillery is raining down beside him. There's men stumbling. He's helping carry them, you know, sort of arm in arms as they get to the top, where it's about 100 men and four artillery pieces. But it's very quickly apparent that the game is up. Um, three batteries are turned on this hill. Shells are raining down around Maximilian. The, you know, the mud and dirt is, is, is flying everywhere. He turns to one of his generals and says, you know, is there a way out? And the general says, well, I don't care for my own life, but I will not risk yours, i.e. it's certain death. He turns to someone else and says, oh, for a lucky bullet. I mean, by this point, he's seen suicidal. He wants to go down fighting. But of course, he looks down below and he sees the town has fallen and that it's continued to fight would be absurd. So he finally gives the signal to surrender. And what has happened, the reason why those Far Easter forces were at the gates of the convent in, in, at five o'clock in the morning was because Lopez, the same man that he had asked to put a bullet through him if he got captured, had that very evening gone over into the Far Easter lines led them through into the city, told the Imperial Easter Guards to stand down and betrayed the emperor in this very dramatic fashion, leading to his capture. He was stabbed in the back, but you can almost understand it. I mean, you want to side with Maximilian here, but if you are one of his advisors, if you're one of his generals and you're around him and he's constantly pushing back the breakout, he can't make decisions. For yourself, you know that I mean, there is no hope. Time is up. These are the final death throws of this empire. And you've got to look out for yourself here. Well, absolutely. And you know, the situation was hopeless, as you say, for that numerous delays. The other thing, the original Napoleon... Maximilian, he's suffering from fevers, dysentery, has terrible stomach cramps, and he's taking opium pills for the pain, rather than eggs with the artillery. The more opposite example would be Jackson Davis, who, of course, not getting much sleep. Most egregious act of treason. So, I mean, he, by rebelling against the United States of America, he's not situation in prison and eventually amnesty, although not quite by desertion was a real problem and that was why they So he's hopeful that there'll be a pardon. The entire courts of Europe, the monarchies of Europe, and indeed Republicans, Garibaldi writes writes an article for clemency. Even the United States of America writes to Benito Juarez and says, you know, you must pardon the emperor, you know, you must, whatever you do, don't execute him. But Benito Juarez is made of much sterner stuff than that. He is absolutely determined to end what for him has not just been the three years of Maximilian's rule, but also the long French intervention. And before that, of course, the civil war with the Conservatives. He's been fighting for nearly 10 years now against the forces of conservatism, European intervention and monarchy. Maximilian is captured alongside two generals who very much represent that conservative Catholic cause in Mexico as well. And so Maximilian is held in prison. He's sort of put around various convents um, in, in increasingly insalubrious conditions. And there's a trial. But it's a show trial. It's held in an actual theatre. So that gives you an, an idea of the political theatre that's going on. And that theatre is named after the first emperor of Mexico, Itabide, who was, of course, also 
executed for treason. And so um, it's clearly going in one direction. And there are a few sort of rather comical attempts to escape, um, which is his, his sort of loyal supporters um, and try and fail to bribe the guards and, and break him out. There's also a particularly cruel delay to the execution. He's meant to be executed on the 16th of June, and he's waiting in his cell uh, for the time of execution, which will be three o'clock, and he's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting, and no one comes. And eventually, at just after three, an officer comes in with a piece of paper. And so this is the moment that you think you'd be pardoned, but it's merely a piece of paper saying that your execution has been postponed for three days to give you more time to settle your affairs, which is an extraordinarily upsetting moment for him. His final hours, he finds the sort of the heroism and the honour that I think he would have wanted to. He's very calm, he's very stoic, he offers a lot of comfort to, to the men who are going to be executed alongside him. But long story short, he's shot by firing squad on the 19th of June, just as, after the sun has risen on this, the very same hill which he was overlooking the town when he surrendered. Do we have any final words from Maximilian? We do. Well, they're contested. There's actually not... There's very few first-hand accounts of his execution. But the most likely final words, which I'll have to paraphrase because I don't have them in front of me, are something like, I've, you know, I may, may my blood, which is about to be spilt, be the last of the spilt on the, on the Mexican soil. I've tried to do my best. Much more eloquent than that. Long live Mexico. Um, long live independence. Um, and those are his final words. Well, at the beginning of this episode, we said it was a, a bit like a, an opera, and it truly is a tragedy in the way that it plays out towards the end. I've got one final question for you, Ed. What happens to Colotta? Well, that's a great question, and uh, it's a very, very sad. Uh, she never fully recovers. She com- she's um, taken first to Miramar, which is um, the, the castle that Maximilian had built for himself and, and his wife on the coast of the Adriatic, and is secluded there. She's then taken by her Belgian family back to Belgium, and she lives on until 1927, which I always think is um, it's ridiculously... I mean, it's a long time ago, but it's also a long time away from the 1860s. But as I say, moments of lucidity punctuated by moments of of irrationality and delusion. She sometimes still believes that Maximilian's alive, even though she, in fact, was kept from her for a long time because it was thought that it would be too detrimental to her health. She is eventually told uh, and she we're told that she drew some comfort from the sort of the the honour of his death and the stoicism which he approached it. And so she occasionally is sort of found wandering Belgian castles playing the Mexican national anthem. So it's this quite extraordinary and extraordinary sad denouement for Carlotta. No one comes out of this, well, apart from, of course, Benito Juarez, who has defeated the forces of European imperialism, monarchy and conservatism and triumphed in the name of Mexican nationalism. Yes, absolutely. I, I suppose in one way it is, it is Mexico that is the winner that comes out of this at this point in time. So... Tell us then, Ed, where can people read more about this extraordinary history? The book is called The Last Emperor of Mexico, A Disaster in the New World, is the UK subtitle published by Faber and Faber, and that is out January 20th. Perfect. We will put a link to that in the show notes. Ed, I can't thank you enough. What an amazing period of history, something I knew nothing about. It was truly brilliant to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.